The Guardian. This is Patrick Ness, author of the Chaos Walking Trilogy and A Monster Calls on the Guardian Children's Book Podcast. And I'm going to be reading from chapter one of my new book, A Monster Calls. The monster showed up just after midnight, as they do. Connor was awake when it came. He'd had a nightmare. Well, not a nightmare, the nightmare. The one he'd been having a lot lately. The one with the darkness and the wind and the screaming. The one with the hand slipping from his grasp no matter how hard he tried to hold on. The one that always ended with, Go away, Connor whispered into the darkness of his bedroom, trying to push the nightmare back, not let it follow him into the world of waking. Go away now. He glanced over the clock his mum had put on his bedside table. 12.07, seven minutes past midnight, which was late for a school night, late for a Sunday, certainly. He'd told no one about the nightmare. Not his mum, obviously, but no one else either. Not his dad and their fortnightly, or so, phone call. Definitely not his grandma, and no one at school. Absolutely not. What happened in the nightmare was something no one else ever needed to know. Connor blinked groggily at his room, then he frowned. There was something he was missing. He sat up in his bed, waking a bit more. The nightmare was slipping from him, but there was something he couldn't put his finger on, something different, something... He listened, straining against the silence, but all he could hear was the quiet house around him, the occasional tick from the empty downstairs, or a rustle of bedding from his mum's room next door. Nothing. And then something. Something he realized was the thing that had woken him. Someone was calling his name. Connor. He felt a rush of panic, his guts twisting. Had it followed him? Had it somehow stepped out of the nightmare and... Don't be stupid, he told himself. You're too old for monsters. And he was. He turned 13 just last month. Monsters were for babies. Monsters were for bedwetters. Monsters were for... Connor. There it was again. Connor swallowed. It had been an unusually warm October and his window was still open. Maybe the curtains shushing each other in the small breeze could have sounded like... Connor. All right, it wasn't the wind. It was definitely a voice, but not one he recognized. It wasn't his mother's, that was for sure. It wasn't a woman's voice at all, and he wondered for a crazy moment if his dad had somehow made a surprise trip from America and arrived too late to phone, and... Connor! No, not his dad. This voice had a quality to it. A monstrous quality, wild and untamed. Then he heard a heavy creak of wood outside, as if something gigantic was stepping across a timber floor. He didn't want to go and look. But at the same time, a part of him wanted to look more than anything. Wide awake now, he pushed back the covers, got out of bed, and went over to the window. In the pale half-light of the moon, he could clearly see the church tower up on the small hill behind his house, the one with the train tracks curving beside it, two hard steel lines glowing dully in the night. The moon shone, too, on the graveyard attached to the church, filled with tombstones you could hardly read anymore. Connor could also see the great yew tree that rose from the center of the graveyard, a tree so ancient it almost seemed to be made of the same stone as the church. He only knew it was a ewe because his mother had told him, first when he was little to make sure he didn't eat the berries, which were poisonous, and again this past year when she started staring out of their kitchen window with a funny look on her face and saying, that's a yew tree, you know. And then he heard his name again, Connor, like it was being whispered in both his ears. What, Connor said, his heart thumping, suddenly impatient for whatever was going to happen. A cloud moved in front of the moon, covering the whole landscape in darkness, and a whoosh of wind rushed down the hill and into his room, billowing the curtains. 
He heard the creaking and cracking of wood again, groaning like a living thing, like the hungry stomach of the world growling for a meal. Then the cloud passed, and the moon shone again, on the yew tree, which now stood firmly in the middle of his back garden. And here was the monster. As Connor watched, the uppermost branches of the tree gathered themselves into a great and terrible face, shimmering into a mouth and nose and even eyes peering back at him. Other branches twisted around one another, always creaking, always groaning, until they formed two long arms and a second leg to set down beside the main trunk. The rest of the tree gathered itself into a spine and then a torso, the thin needle-like leaves weaving together to make a green furry skin that moved and breathed as if there were muscles and lungs underneath. Already taller than Connor's window, the monster grew wider as it brought itself together, filling out into a powerful shape, one that looked somehow strong, somehow mighty. It stared at Connor the whole time, and he could hear the loud, windy breathing from its mouth. It set its giant hands on either side of his window, lowering its head until its huge eyes filled the frame, holding Connor with its glare. Connor's house gave a little moan under its weight. And then the monster spoke. Thank you, Patrick. It's a book with a really unusual beginning. Can you tell me a bit more about how how this book came about? Uh, Yes, the original idea started with the writer Siobhan Dowd, the tremendously talented, wonderful writer Siobhan Dowd, who uh, won the Carnegie Medal in 2009, but unfortunately she was the only author to have ever won the medal posthumously. She died of breast cancer. Uh, And this was the final book that she was working on just before she died, and she... There wasn't a ton of it. There was uh, characters and a premise and a a beginning. And so my publishers brought it to me and asked me if I'd consider turning it into a novel. I did hesitate. And there was enough of of her story there, of her writing there, for this fantastically rich beginning. There was so much in this premise. But there was also not not so much that uh, any writer would feel trapped by it that it had room to grow. And I felt, while writing it, that it felt like a, like a private conversation between me and her. I wasn't trying to guess what she might have written. I was trying to write something that might delight her. And writing a story that's in your voice. Yeah, because um, I think there's a terrible risk if you try to mimic another writer. Mm. It's, it's a very emotionally powerful book. I defy anybody to read it without blubbing. <laughs> what did you draw on for those parts? It is about loss, but it's more about the fear of loss. I think the fear of loss is really universal, that feeling of losing your most beloved. And I have a real strong belief about writing is that the job of a writer, the responsibility of any writer is to look and write what's actually there. And I thought we have to be true to Connor's experience, to what he goes through, to what he really feels, as uncomfortable as it may be, because if, if you can be truthful about those difficult things, then what's also true is that there is also positive stuff. There are ways to get through this. And I think if you're honest about the things that are difficult, then honesty about the things that aren't so difficult feels truer, if you know what I mean. Mm. And I think teenagers get soft-pedaled a lot. I think they get um, lessons shoved at them rather too often. And when I wanted to read as a teenager, I wanted somebody to tell me the truth, because then I, then I would trust them when they told me things that I didn't know. There's a very interesting quote at the beginning of the book. It says, you're only young once, they say, but doesn't it go on for a long time, more years than you can bear? It feels forever. It really does forever. I mean, can you remember those years in the beginning of summer would feel like the beginning of an eternity? That's the incredible positive about being young, being 13, 14, 15, but it's also the hardest part. 
Because when something difficult happens, it feels like you really are going to be stuck there forever. It feels like it does go on forever. Youth is a double-edged sword, I think. Well, Monsters of Men, not a monster cause yet, has been shortlisted for the Carnegie Awards. And I've got a question here from Olivia, who says, if you had to pick one of your own books to shortlist, which one would it be and why? And another question from her, which one would you pick to be the winner out of this year's shortlist, not including your own? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, picking, sort of picking your own favourite from among your own books is like picking your favourite child. You're asking your parents to pick your favourite child. They totally have one, but they're never going to tell you. I like The Knife of Never Letting Go for its energy. It has an energy that I seemed to come out of nowhere when I wrote it. I really, really like the issues and the ask and the answer. There are things that are really important to me. And I really, really like the way Monsters of Men finishes. That is an ending that I was waiting to write for three years. So to pick one among the three, I couldn't possibly. I'm sorry, I'm going to chicken out of your first question, Olivia. I couldn't possibly say. As for this year, the shortlist, not including myself, I think Meg Rosoff is a terrific writer. I might, in the end, go for the Jason Wallace, which had the Out of Shadows, the Zimbabwe book, which I reviewed for The Guardian, actually, and which is has such power to it. A really tremendously powerful book. So if I can't win, uh, they're all great. They're all great. And I know a number of them uh, personally. But uh, maybe, maybe the Jason Wallace, just by a little, but, but I might change my mind tomorrow. This is from the Tagoran123, who says, I'm a diehard Redwall fan, yet I'm looking for a good book to read once I finish the Redwall books. Could you recommend one of your books that you think I would like? I would start with The Knife of Never Letting Go. It's where the trilogy begins. It's where you first meet Todd. It's the introduction to the world. And again, it, it moves in a way that I, I can't figure out how it moves that way. I don't know where it came from. So to, but uh, yeah, I think you might like that one. You have also written adult fiction as, as well as children's teen fiction. We've got a question from Libby, which concerns Martin Amos's recent comments regarding children's books. He says, if I had a serious brain injury, I might well write a children's book. Well, I mean, honestly, and he he wonders why everyone thinks he's a prat. I mean, honestly, these quotes always seem to surface when he has a new book to push. So I suspect he had a paperback coming out or something. But as for writing at a low register, I think that says uh, far more by Martin Amos than it ever does about children's writing. I never, ever once think that I'm writing at a lower register. And I'm sorry that if he can't exist within any particular confines that he can't find the skill to write for teenagers well that's the fair deuce to him i wouldn't really want to read a teenage book by him anyway but uh, i have never once not once felt like i was writing at a lower register never never i felt on the contrary i felt liberated and finally a reader called reader would like to know which books did you read when you were young and how did they influence you I was a child in America, so a lot of them you might not have heard of. There's a fantastic American writer called Daniel Pinkwater who wrote some really terrific, really cracked, crazy books. Like, I remember one of them has, um, they they fly off into space and they sort of pass by hell, which has become this huge tourist attraction. And I loved that kind of thing. I loved that kind of craziness, that kind of funniness. But I overreached a lot. I read a lot of Stephen King, anything and everything. I think that's the thing I always recommend to younger readers is not to be a snob to really give everything a try. Some things you're not going to like at all. That's fine. But don't be a snob and you might be surprised at what you like. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.